Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Miranda Cowley Heller on her debut novel, The Paper Palace. Miranda Cowley Heller was raised in New York in a family of artists, writers and editors. After graduating from Harvard, she was the fiction and books editor at Cosmopolitan magazine, eventually leaving to live and write in Italy. In 1997, she moved with her British husband to Los Angeles, where she worked for a decade as senior vice president and head of drama series at HBO, developing and overseeing such shows as The Sopranos, Six Feet Under, The Wire, Deadwood and Big Love, amongst others. And today we're going to be talking about Miranda's debut novel, which was recently longlisted for the Women's Prize 2022 over here in the UK, The Paper Palace. Miranda, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's fantastic. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe the novel. Um, The novel is a love story, but also a sort of generational family saga. And it's uh, about one woman's life told in two time frames, 24 hours and 50 years that lead up to and meet that 24 hours from the back, as it were. Um, And I would say it was sort of a story about lies and the inheritance of trauma and the weight of secrets that we have to carry. And also just the different paths our lives take depending on the choices we make big or small. So Elle Bishop who is a narrator tell us something about who she is when when we meet her in the present day. Elle is Elle Bishop is a in her early 50s she's from New York City very east coast american from an old sort of bohemian family of artists probably similar to my own, although this is not autobiographical, nor is it memoir. Um, And Elle is, when the novel opens, she's at this rundown summer camp uh, on a pond on Cape Cod. It's the summer camp that belongs to her mother and mother's family before that. And she spends every summer of her life here. Elle is there with her British husband, Peter, who's fantastic, and her three children. And she is a woman who has undergone a lot in her life. And um, when we meet her, she is at a turning point, the sort of inflection point of her entire life where she has to decide what her future will be, whether she's going to stay with her husband, who she loves, or whether she's going to leave him for the man she has always in her mind loved, her childhood love, Jonas. And so that's where we meet her is in the morning, the night before she has gone outside during her mother's loud dinner party on a screen porch with her husband Peter inside talking to Jonas's wife Gina and Jonas and Elle go out into the dark night and have passionate sex for the first time ever 
And now she wakes up and realizes she's going to have to make a decision between these two men and two futures. And the one sort of critical thing there is that we know from the very beginning that Elle has never gone there, as it were, before with Jonas. This has never happened in decades of friendship. So there's a sort of quiet mystery going through the entire novel, why last night? A sort of a why done it instead of a who done it, if you will. A mm-hmm. little it's sort of a quiet emotional mystery that the 50 years will solve. And you mentioned the structure of the novel. I wanted to talk about, again, why why you chose to write it in that way. So both the present day is, you know, the restriction of writing the the story over just a 24-hour period, but then also interweaving that, not just with Elle's backstory, but then the book is split into separate sections where, although Elle is always the narrator, it takes more of a focus on Peter for a while and, and his background, and then more of and how they met, then more of a focus on Jonas and how they met. So tell us more about why you decided to structure the book in this way. So, in fact, The 50 Years isn't a flashback. It's told from the point of view of L. Uh, at those ages. I mean, of course, not when she's a few months old in the very beginning, but that's a a sort of a memory, a sense memory story. But the idea for me was twofold. First of all, I had kind of started with this idea of a life told, as I say, in two separate ways. And when I was a, a kid, I had this obsession with this John Lennon quote, life is what happens when you're making other plans. And I think in my 40s, having always planned to be a novelist, my, and never been one, um, I suddenly realized my life had happened and <laughs> I, ha- I wasn't a novelist. I was still doing the same thing that I used to say, I'm never going to be that person. Uh, and I got down to writing the novel. And in a weird way, that was the starting point for me was two lives, the life in your head and then the life you actually lead. And I felt like, well, there was a, a sort of a moment, a conversation in my life earlier that also had to, was relevant to the structure, which was with uh, a conversation about painting. I grew up in a family of painters. I lived with a painter and they would always talk about plasticity. This Velasquez is so plastic. And I didn't understand the concept at all. And But ultimately, as it was described to me in a way that I could fathom, was that This is very point of view, obviously, but a bad painter goes to paint an apple and he paints or she paints what uh, they think an apple looks like, what they imagine in their head they think it is. And um, a good painter doesn't even see the apple. He sees tone and space and dust and an apple emerges. And that's the plastic apple. That's Cezanne's apple. That's Rembrandt's apple, right? This is this notion. And I thought that would be really, really interesting to examine in a different medium. And so sort of her 50 years is told in these little dust, you know, these little bits. And that would be sort of Cezanne's apple, so to speak. And her 24 hours and the life of the mind's eye that she's always had in her head with Jonas is the other way of looking at something. Um, but without passing judgment on what was good or bad. So that's sort of where I strangely started with structure. And then it just took on a life of its own because that's what life does, right? And I was following, I was going forward in a path from childhood. And so I didn't really know what was going to happen to Elle, but I knew that it was good, It was going to end up at this day. That's all I knew. I want to talk about the a bit more detail about the two men in Elle's life in a minute. But first of all, I wanted you to say something about both her 
mother and father who are brilliantly conceived characters in different ways. Her father, a lot more elusive because he's not present for a lot of the time, but even so, still like a brilliantly realised character. But Elle's mother in particular is it's just amazing. Tell us something about who her mother and father are. Elle's mother, Wallace, is probably my favourite character on some level in the novel. So much fun to write, I must say. And her father is a more, as you say, elusive character because it's a family of divorce and Elle's mother is the one who stays, as it were, whereas her father sort of goes off with different wives. And Elle's mum has herself gone through sort of massive trauma as a child and come out standing strong. These are are all the women in the novel are women who have been experience dark things, the grandmother, the mother, and Elle, and don't have sort of rose-colored glasses on at all about the world or about life. And in particular, Wallace has become quite, I think, because of her childhood, emotionally shut down, but also quite funny. And in a way, you can't quite get through her shell, although ultimately one does. But she is, on the surface, just shoves everything away with humor and with rudeness, and she's imperious and she's a snob, and I love her. (laughs) Um, You know, she has, she's just awful, but she's also great and kind, and she sees things. She's observant, but she just has this way with her, which, of course, affects the way Elle behaves when she herself goes through a trauma, because her mother isn't the kind of person she can kind of go to easily for a variety of reasons, and so she doesn't. But in any event, Elle's father comes not from a broken family, as Elle's mother does, by the way, um, but from a very close-knit family. But he himself is a, a rather insecure man, and his life is sort of governed by the women, the wives in his life. And so there is a little bit of an element for young Elle and her sister, Anna, who's a couple of years older, uh, of a sort of Grimm's fairy tale quality to their childhood, being sort of shuttled back and forth between their parents, and then ultimately even shuttled not even to their father's house, but sort of shoved away by his new wife to her parents' house. And so again, one of the things I was really interested in looking at was, for character, was the effects of divorce in that time period, at least, you know, one particular version of that. And of course, Wallace also is remarried and it's the family she brings into the marriage and her husband's children that really, again, change Elle's life. So all of these choices, the love affairs of the parents end up uh, completely determining in a way the lives of the children and then the choices that they end up making for themselves and their own children. Uh, Well, let's talk about some of those choices then so I wanted to talk about Peter and Jonas the two men the choice between seems to be at the center of this it's not necessarily what the novel's about but seems to be at the center of this story Elle's choice between these these two men so tell us something about both of these right so and and as you say the sort of putative structure of the book is a choice between two men but of course really the novel is about this one woman's journey and which isn't to say that the two men or the choice are insignificant it's not that case at all however Elle has two men in her life uh Jonas is her as I say her childhood best friend they met on Cape Cod where the novel takes place her sort of her place in the world and she meets him first when he's eight years old 
Um, later, when she's in, when they're in, in their early teens, he's younger than she is, but they become absolute best friends and sort of fall in love as children. He um, goes on to become a painter. They lose touch, but much later are reunited with, he's with his wife, Gina, she's with Peter and the two couples, you know, become best friends in essence. But there's this bond between Jonas and Elle that as the novel progresses, you begin to understand, understand why it's there and understand as well what happened when they were in their teens. That means they cannot be together. Um, Jonas is a sort of nature boy. I always kind of think of him in my mind as... Um, he's always barefoot. He's always barefoot. He's he's a little Daniel Day-Lewis in Last of the Mohicans, let's put it that way. Super heartthrob, uh, but very kind of, you know, yeah, outdoors, barefoot, tanned, loves to be, wander the, the woods, that, uh, that kind of a character. Whereas Peter, her husband, who's British, comes from a, you know, rather upper middle class, I would say, family, posh family, you know, who, um, and live, you know, is a journalist. His parents live in a beautiful flat in Chelsea, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He lives in Hampstead. Uh, his parents, he grew up in, you know, with this nice family. It's a, it's a lot of the kind of salmon with mayonnaise for, cold salmon with mayonnaise for lunch crowd, let's put it that way. And um, so in any event, um, and he's wonderful. He is elegant and funny and witty and wry, and he's a rock. He is, you know, an oak. This guy is great, and he's a great father, and it's not to say he's a perfect person, of course not. Um, he can lose his temper rarely, but when he does, you know, stand clear. And these two men couldn't be more different in her life. The point of the books, as you mentioned, the way they're separated out really, is that I think when a reader starts the book and goes, who is this horrible woman, right? She's just, you know, she's just had sex with her, this guy, and the husband and wife are inside, you know. Uh, there's an immediate moral judgment, I think, that a lot of readers, not all, but many put on onto L the second the book starts. And um, that's one of the things that really interested me was then telling as the story progresses and you from her point of view at the time and you experience her life with her sort of in real time, even if it's in the past, you get to know these two men in her life and why she loves them both and how she can feel this way and be this divided. And I think they're very equally weighted and they each have their own large, you know, swathes of story. And what was important to me was that no reader lean one way or the other the entire time. In other words, you want to go, oh, of course she has to be with Peter. And then, oh, no, of course she's got to be with Jonas. Oh, no, no, of course she has to be, you know, back and forth. And if they aren't equally weighted, then the novel doesn't, there's no novel, really. Because otherwise, I'm, you know, you're sort of putting your hand on the scale and it's just a silly book, in my opinion. <laughs> but it was really, really important to me that both men are powerhouses in their own way. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Miranda Cowley-Heller and we're talking about her novel, The Paper Palace. And Miranda, you said very insistently towards the beginning of the interview that this is not autobiographical or a memoir. It's obviously a novel. But I wanted to talk about to what extent the family milieu, Cape Cod, the house, you know, the various bohemian families is drawn from your your own memories, your own experience. Mm, Yeah. So in that regard, what I would say is that the stage sets are real. The stories themselves are not. And of course, with some, you know, the the pond where she is, nothing is exact, of course. But that having been said, there's there was I started with that place. That was the first character in the novel was this camp, this woods, this part of Cape Cod where I grew up and and the way that place shapes us. And this place for me is was the most important place in my life growing up particularly coming out of a family of divorce, being shuttled around. And and those pieces, obviously reimagined, are the essence of something I was looking at. And that is from my own life, of course. I mean, what else are we going to follow but things that exist unless it's a science fiction? But in any event, you know, I was very interested in the way a place, one lands in one place that becomes the most important place to you where you feel the safest, And it doesn't even matter, as we learn with Elle, whether it's the safest place. (laughs) It can be a place that holds lots of danger and darkness, but it's the place that defines you or through which you define yourself. And so growing up on the Cape every summer, you know, my family, as I said, artists, my mother's an opera singer. We were able to leave, which was a great um, thing in those days for the entire summer. You know, we could just be taken out of school and gone for three months and, you know, live in a bathing suit, don't even own a pair of shoes, little kids just running free around these oh, these wild woods and dirt roads. And a lot of people think of this as the most sort of rundown shack in the world, because it is where I, where I grew up. But um, to me, it was magic and still is. And for Elle, it is also magic and still is in her life, regardless of the darkness that's also existed there. So in terms of the divorce, you know, that that is, again, that's something I just grew up in. And I thought it's so important to look at 
that because Elle has children herself, right? <laughs> um, and the effects of love on the children, both good and bad, uh, really is something that I was interested in examining through her. Talking about that, the darkness in Elle's life, throughout the novel, there is often just casual abuse of various kinds, you know, whether that's just neglect of children through divorce or parents casually wandering through the room naked in front of their children, or it's, you know, actual sustained sexual abuse that goes on at a number of points in the book. And I wanted to talk about just writing about that, you know, how how that was to actually to write about that sort of abuse. That's a really interesting question in terms of how it was to write. I mean, mm. those the importance for me, you use the word casual, and of course, and I understand the context, it's, the, it's precisely the attitude of the people walking, not, the, not L or not mm-hmm. L. Indeed. Uh, that is the casualness. And it's precisely that casualness that sort of, in let's say in the scene where the, those parents walk naked into the room, that is a little bit scarring. It's the reason that's one of her you know, specific memories and moments. I wanted to look at, because the novel is, is it set in period as well, you know, looking at how the 60s and 70s and the way it freed our parents, how it sort of entrapped many of us. Because there's, it's really sort of scary as a child when suddenly your parents are the ones who can do whatever they want and are wandering and they're naked and just living their, you know, letting their freak flags fly, as they say. <laughs> and, you know, you're a little kid and suddenly there's sort of, you know, a penis flapping around quite near your face, whatever, not in a sexualized way at all, but just sort of, we can do what we want. And I think there was a little bit of darkness in the 70s, um, particularly in New York too, that came out of this, a kind of sexual... Um, repressiveness almost that probably then emerged in that generation of children more in the 90s let's say and so that kind of attitude the casualness is very important to me in not from it wasn't casual but it but if I had been heavy-handed about it it wouldn't have been it couldn't be experienced the way Elle experienced it as a child and then I think a lot of the dark pieces that came out yeah and I've gotten a lot of you know, certain number of of readers wishing that they'd been warned about what was going to happen. And I understand that. And that wasn't a choice. And in any case, that was up to me, but the whole trigger warning conversation. But I will only say that writing about it, you know, life does not come with trigger warnings. And that was the hard part is, is that, you know, what Elle goes through is not, she doesn't know what's going to happen before it happens. And I didn't either, really. It just kind of came out. I didn't have an outline for the story or anything. And it was, so writing it that way made it easier for me to write with, I hope, verisimilitude and the way, the casualness of horror in actual life. When you read about it or look back on it, you know, it's, you can, it's codified in a different way. But when it's happening in real time, there's, can, it can just be so, um, prosaic, the worst violence, the worst of any of these things. And so I kind of wanted to capture that as well. But my attitude is far from casual. Let's put it that way. Widening this out a little bit, you just mentioned that you didn't have an outline for the story, but tell us more about how the novel came together, how it was written, you know, how long did it take, etc. Um, took a long time. <laughs> um, I had started a decade before I actually wrote it. I'd started this book, the first kind of chapter. I t- 
tried, sort of poked at a few different things, uh, about four different books. One was YA, actually, but they all took place on the pond. And I put them in a drawer and decided, because I'd left my job at HBO, and then I decided, you know, I'll just go back to school to get a, a graduate degree in art history, very random, and went back to UCLA. And then much later, ended up taking this out of the drawer and deciding, okay, I'm just going to give it one shot. I've always said I was going to be a novel, write a novel. I'm going to just see whether I can do it. And so I had these little pages and that's all I had. And then I had no structure, no idea what the story was going to be. All I knew was it was going to end up somewhere, <laughs> choosing something Elle was. I didn't decide I didn't know, that's a better way of putting it, who she was going to choose until the second to last page of the novel. I had no idea. And I would not have made the choice I made. <laughs> and when I got to the realization of who she, this character, was going to choose, I was a little horrified. But it's who she is, not who I am. And that was a really fun and interesting learning process that you are not the one directing the characters. They have a life of their own at a certain point. And, you know, so I, nothing was premeditated and that was the fun of it. To what extent do you think your years working in television drama, sort of episodic television, helped in the writing of the novel? I think in the dialogue, absolutely. When I think when I first started trying to write this book, I thought, well, I can't write dialogue. I don't know how to write dialogue. And then in the end, it was the easiest piece for me and uh, that was years of reading scripts and years of you get an ear of course a sort of musical ear for shitty dialogue and good dialogue and uh, and what makes something real and that's something you just osmose after a while and so how people actually speak is certainly something that came out uh, for me from that experience and I would also say understanding what's not said is as telling as what is said both in dialogue and in description, in fact. And that's because, of course, in a script, that's kind of 50% of it, right? And so in that sense, there's a lot that I learned to sort of follow the rule of show me, don't tell me, which is sort of right, the cardinal rule of, of fiction and screenplays. But it, that one really sank in, I think, after all of those years of realizing what kind of craft I responded to. And how have you found the the reaction to the novel it was you know it's a debut it took you a long time to get to this point and you obviously come from you know an illustrious literary family on on, you know on both yourself and you know your husband's side and you know the book has been a massive bestseller it's as I mentioned it's it's recently been long listed for the woman's prize over here Uh, well my experience has been extraordinary and mind-blowing of course I took a long time writing it, but I also am not somebody who, you know, they talk about ass in chair writers, you know, no matter what, just sit down in that chair every day. I'm not that writer. Sometimes weeks would go by and then, and then I would do nothing but write. I mean, I'm very, it's, I'm idiosyncratic in that way, let's say. So it took, it took the time it took, but also nobody was waiting for it and nobody was expecting it and no one cared, which gave me a lot of freedom. And so I, what I finally knew was that I, I felt when I put it out into the world, or into publishing houses and so on, that I knew that I knew I loved it and I knew it was well-written, but I truly did not have a sense of whether any of it would connect with anybody else. 
And that's been the most amazing piece of it, actually. I mean, yes, of course, it's a New York Times bestseller is incredible, right? But it's the reason for that is that all these people are reading it. And the people who are reading it are the reason that, that it is meaningful. And I mean, truly, because once you put a book in the world, it's no longer yours. And it's their story. It's the reader brings their own imagination and vision and, and life experience to the story. And so that when I get these responses from people, I mean, it's just so beautiful, actually, the, the personal responses that people writing to me, you know, over Instagram or whatever, all the time, just really that just every single time somebody writes to me and tells me about why it's meaningful to them is a thrill, which seems like it should get tiresome, but it doesn't. Every single time I just feel like this thump thump in my heart. It makes me so happy and proud that it's connecting. And that I would say more than anything is just what has been incredible is to feel that almost now international connection with people. To finish us off, can I get you to read us a little bit? Uh, sure, I'd love to. I'm going to read a section. So um, uh, it's a section, um, it's the morning still. And um, Elle is, uh, it's 11 a.m. And Elle is sitting on the porch with her younger children. Peter has gone off. They've had a bit of a fight and he's gone off. And um, she is sitting with her kids thinking about the night before and I'll set it up with the children, but it's basically just a little scene from the dinner party the night before when the children come in and her mother is there and the various uh, other members of the dinner party. A fly has gotten itself trapped inside the porch. It buzzes against the screen, wings and legs rasping the metal filaments. Every so often it stops to rethink and the porch goes silent. Only the sound of pages turning, Finn's spit bubble popping with a faint plip as he concentrates on his game. Across the pond on the small public access beach, people are already staking out their patch of sand for the day, unpacking picnics onto cotton tablecloths to prevent anyone else from impinging. I should never have let Peter convince me to meet Jonas and Gina at the beach. The thought of facing Jonas in the stark light of day, eating Gina's tuna sandwiches and rehashing last night's dinner party. The lie in my smile. There's no reason I have to go. Peter made the plan. He can take the kids. No one will care except me, because then they will get to be near Jonas and I won't. They will get to lay their towels next to his in the hot sand. And the thought of not seeing him fills me with an agonized, tangy ache to touch him, brush his hand under the surf, a hunger, an addiction, a siren, a siren with a penis, I think, and laugh out loud. What's so funny, Maddie asks. Nothing, I catch myself, nothing's funny. That's kind of weird, Mom, she says, going back to her book, laughing for no reason. It's like a creepy clown. She scratches a mosquito bite on her ankle. The more you scratch, the more it itches. The kids are still in their pajamas. A drip of candle wax has hardened on Finn's sleeve there from last night when they came in to say goodnight to the drunken grown-ups. We heard you singing, Finn had said, coming in through the screen door with a mischievous, I know I'm supposed to be in bed, but here I am, expression. Oh, for heaven's sakes, you were meant to be asleep hours ago, I said. You people are making too much noise, Maddie said. Climb on, I pulled Finn onto my lap, but only five minutes. He leaned forward to peel a wax stalactite off the side of a candlestick. A few drops of wax dripped onto his sleeve. Can I blow out the candles? No, you may not. Will you walk us back to bed? I heard something in the bushes. I think it might be a wolf. There's no wolves here, dummy, Maddie said. I'm getting a glass of milk. Finn climbed off my lap and went over to curl up on the sofa next to Peter, who carried on talking to Gina, stroking Finn's back as if he were a cat. Across the table from me, Anna's godfather, John Dixon, and my step-grandmother, Pamela, were arguing with Jonas's mother about nesting shorebirds. It's our beach, Pamela was saying. What right does the Park Service have to coordinate off? 
I couldn't agree more. It's for the birds, Dixon said, laughing too hard at his own pun. The beach belongs to Mother Nature, Jonas's mother said. Do you honestly care more about where you put your towel down than the possible extinction of a species? Can someone open the screen door for me? Maddie came out of the pantry, balancing two glasses of milk. Peter stood up, a bit unsteady on his feet, opened the porch door, mushed the top of her hair. Daddy, I'll spill, Maddie laughed, spilling a puddle of milk. Finn got down on all fours and slurped the milk off the floor. I'm a cat, he said. Gross. Maddie blew me a kiss. Night, Mama, I love you. Night, everyone. Night, sugar plums, Peter said, laying back down on the sofa. And not another peep. You spoil those children, my mother said, after they disappeared down the path into the darkness. In my day, children were supposed to be seen and not heard. If only that rule still applied to you, Wallace, Peter called over. Your husband is terrible, Mum said, pleased. I don't know how you've put up with him all these years. Love is blind, thank God, or at least my wife is, Peter laughed. That's the secret to my happiness. Well, in my day, we simply divorced and remarried, Mum said. So much simpler, refreshing even, like buying a new suit of clothes. Huh, I said, that's not quite how I remember it. And if Anna were here, I can guarantee she'd agree. Oh, please, Mum dismissed me. You turned out just fine. If your father and I had stayed married, who knows what you might have been? You might have become some happy, namby-pamby twit. You might have become a hotel manager. Divorce is good for children. She stood up and began clearing away a few lingering dinner forks. Unhappy people are always more interesting. I could feel the familiar fight rising inside me. But Jonas leaned over and whispered, ignore her. She says things she doesn't mean when she drinks. You know that. I nodded, poured myself a glass of grappa, handed the bottle to him. Our fingers touched as he took it from me and poured one for himself. A toast. He held up his glass. What are we toasting? I asked, clinking glasses. Blind love. His eyes never left mine. So I've been talking to Miranda Cowley-Heller. We've been talking about her debut novel, The Paper Palace, which is out in the UK from Penguin. Miranda, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Well, thank you so much for your interest and for allowing me to prattle on like this. <laughs> this episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.